1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to Alice Kang, an aspiring Muslim democracy. The book is published by University of Minnesota Press this year. I hope that you really enjoy the interview that I did with Alice. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, my name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure to talk to the author of Bargaining for Women's Rights, Activism in an Aspiring Muslim Democracy, published by University of Minnesota Press. The author is Alice Kang. Alice, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing well, thank you.
1: Yeah, thanks for coming on. Before we get to your interesting book, maybe you could just tell us just a little bit about yourself.
0: Sure. I am an assistant professor of political science and ethnic studies at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Before getting into academia, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Burkina Faso, and I, I worked a bit in Washington, D.C., and then I went on to get my Ph.D. at the University of Wisconsin-Madison.
1: Great. It's um, such an interesting book that covers such different sort of pieces. Um, uh, your book is about a particular type of country, uh, what you describe as a, as a Muslim democracy. So which countries does this include, and, and which does it not include? in this category of Muslim democracies? Mm
0: -hmm. That's a great question. Um, Muslim democracies include um, many that are in Africa. So it includes Mali, Senegal. Um, You could include Indonesia presently, but it certainly doesn't include countries like Saudi Arabia, um, Pakistan, Morocco, um, and Egypt.
1: So, and, you know, as you note in the book, um, the, the focus of the book is on Niger, which is 90% Muslim. And, and you spent 14 months doing the field work for the book. I'm sure, the book took longer than that, but that's what you describe as, as your time. Um, it sounds like in country. So what was it like and where did you spend most of your time and, and how did the political leaders and activists respond to your research inquiries?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, my time in the field was wonderful. I would say it was whereas peace corps was really difficult and I I was you know counting the days. I the time in the field just flew by and it was it was a really wonderful experience. I I spent most of it in the city in the capital of Niamey because that's where many people were directly lobbying um ministers and the president and Parliamentarians. Um, and the activists and government officials were very welcoming. So, of, of all the people that I approached, I think only two um, never got back to me or, or weren't available to speak.
1: That's, that, that has to be pretty good, given that the subject matter is, is not uncontroversial. Um, you look in the book at activism for, but also against women's rights. So who are some of the major players in Niger on either side of this issue? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, um, it it does change over time, but when it comes to women's rights, I, I group in the book um, the activists into two camps, although the camps kind of can blend over time and merge. Um, on the women's activist side, there are, is an Umbrella Women's Association called Congafen. and they have played a big role in lobbying for legislative reform. On the other side, you have what I call conservative activists. They don't use the term conservative. Uh, Normally, their, their groups will have the name Muslim in them, so it might be the Union of Muslim Women of Niger, um, and there are different umbrella groups that form um, where they try to explicitly bring together Muslim associations.
1: And and what was at stake here? Before we maybe talk about the specific policies, I wonder if you could maybe just talk about, you know, what, what political life in Niger is, is like for women. What are um, where does this fall in comparison to some other country in terms of uh, the the important set of rights and and, uh, laws that that might govern uh, the life of men and women in in the country. Mm -hmm.
0: There is a lot at stake. Um, I tend to take the view that, you know, women's rights need to be actively um, promoted and protected in all countries. There there are a lot of like rankings that will try to, um, you know, categorized in a hierarchical way where women stand. So and, and, and in those, Niger often falls at the bottom. So I think there was several years ago a, a news article saying that Niger was the worst place to be a woman. Um but I I tend to question those types of rankings. Um but so what is at stake in Niger? But I think everywhere, including in the in the United States is Equality between men and women, and those are always being um, contested.
1: Now, unlike and, and this is what you describe in the book, unlike other books on African democracies, you argue that the parliament in Niger is very important. Why is this the case? What what is the legislature in Niger? Why why is it more central to policymaking on these issues than maybe in other similarly structured democracies?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Even like even observers who know um, their country politics well, they'll say that their parliament is a rubber stamp um, and that it doesn't really play a central role in terms of making laws. Um, I, I don't contest that There's, there is a difference between U.S. style um, congresses and like French or British style. Parliaments where or in countries like in the u k and niger and other African countries, a lot of the policy making is actually done in the ministry um, so so if you wanted to inform policy, you would probably try to get a job in the ministry rather than run for office um, but in the in the case of niger and i wasn't expecting this at all I was actually surprised by when I When I did the field work, the, the parliament does actively debate, um, legislation, even if the president and prime minister support it. And this might be the case in other African parliaments. Um, people haven't, people are just starting to actually look at, you know, the day to day work that parliaments do in Africa. So hopefully my book contributes to that that new kind of research.
1: Yeah, so let's get to some of the analysis of the book. Um, the book explains several particular policies that passed and others that, that failed to pass. I wonder if you could maybe briefly describe the four policy cases that you look at in the book and maybe some similarities about the two that passed and some similarities about the two that failed. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, well, firstly, I, I thought it was really important to look at cases of success and failure because generally people will look at only one or the other, but not both. Um, and I thought to really understand, like, debates over women's rights in Muslim countries, you needed to have a framework to explain, you know, why, why states or governments will um, make concessions and try to promote women's rights in some areas, but not in others. So the two, the two kind of like what I call the success cases. Um, the one is the adoption of an affirmative action policy, um, which are known as gender quotas. And many hundred, I think more than a hundred countries have some kind of a gender quota. So Niger adopted a a gender quota law that that mandates that women uh, make up at least twenty five percent of of promotions or appointments and 10% of any elected office. The other policy that passed was the ratification of the United Nations Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW. So those were the two that were adopted. And I wanted to understand from like a micro level, from a really like on the ground level in terms of how, how these um, were made a reality. The other two that failed, um, one was uh, the attempt to reform family law, and this, this goes back at least four decades where the state has, every decade they try to um, reform their family law system, and each time it's failed. And then the last policy that I look at is um the attempt to ratify another women's rights treaty, a treaty that comes from the African Union. And that thus far has been rejected. So that Niger is has not ratified this treaty. So in terms of
1: strategies and tactics, what is what's the basis of, of which these these four cases and, and others are 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 fought out? Is this What we would, uh, resemble, uh, traditional legislative lobbying as we would see it in the United States? Or, or is this pursued in, in other types of ways? What, what do the activist groups on either side of the, of these issues do? How are they, how are they doing, uh, how, how are they pursuing their causes? Mm
0: -hmm. That is a great question. And that I found that not many people were asking or answering that question and, in Muslim democracies when it comes to, like, debates over women's rights. Um, so the activists do a number of different things. For, um, for both of them, naming is a really important kind of, like, activity or strategy. So identifying new problems. So a lot of things are taken for granted. Um, maybe not having any women in parliament. People just kind of, like, accept that as a status quo. So what activists can do is actually say, you know what, this is a problem. This is something that's not inevitable. This is something that the government needs to address. Um, so naming is really important. Um, I find that activists are more likely to influence reform when they actually blame someone specific. So, um, like pointing the finger to someone and saying that they are responsible for addressing the problem is really crucial for advancing their cause. Um, and then last, proposing some sort of specific solution. so claiming. Um, this is based on uh, a scholars in, in law and society um, who I identified these terms, um, naming, blaming, and claiming. Activists can advance policy if they... Make very specific demands upon the people that they hold responsible.
1: So, what do you take away from these these two successes and, and the two failures about the the state of the democracy in Niger, and 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 how much of this can be generalized to other what you describe uh, aspiring Muslim democracies? Is this a Niger story, or is this a story that's somewhat broader than than just that country?
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. So I think there's several things to take away regarding the state of democracy. Um, we see that like democracy is really thriving in that you have you know multiple groups, you know you have activists who are um, really engaged in the policy making process. They're identifying problems, they're going to the ministers they know, they're going to they're speaking with the parliamentarians. Um, and so you see a lot of like active participation and debate. one thing that one thing that I didn't anticipate would be an issue in terms of democracy is that not in all cases, but in some the conservative some conservative Muslims use tactics that kind of effectively scared or intimidated women's activists um there's one case in the family law reform where um three women were identified on the radio by by this one particular preacher and he issued a curse on them and curses are taken really seriously and that just killed the debate over over the family law reform and and when i did interviews with some of the women who were named um they said that they they were terrified, like they couldn't sleep and they didn't want to talk about the reform anymore, not until like many years later. And so one of the things I, I wonder aloud about in the book at the end is whether, you know, when you issue these curses or or whether tactics that really intimidate activists, whether we consider those democratic or stifling democratic debate.
1: Uh, the the idea of how pluralism plays out in, in democracies like these just seems like a, a an area for such rich scholarship. Uh, we can add your book, uh, Bargaining for Women's Rights, Activism in an Aspiring Muslim Democracy, to that group. The book is published by University of Minnesota Press. Alice King, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you.